New York State of Crime. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a true crime podcast exploring New York's most disturbing criminal cases. I'm Peter. I'm Brenna. And that was the amount of... That was awful. <laughs> that's the height of the happiness we will have because of how depressing this story I'm about to tell you is. Oh, no. Yes. Why would you... I'm sorry. Why would you say that? Do you want to say it again? No. Um, I don't know what episode this is. This is episode 12. Hey, everyone. This is episode 12. How you doing? How are you doing? What is new in the world? I mean, lots of lots of depressing stuff. That's true. What is fun in the world? Um, ooh, maybe stuff for us. Because I just bought a bunch of shit on Amazon, like different microphones and uh, spring stands and mm-hmm. pop filters and all of this like fun podcast making, recording, making stuff. Mm-hmm. Which means maybe we're not going to sound as bad pretty So soon. if you made it this far and you don't hate how we sound, but you're like, eh, keep on keeping on because it's only going to get better, baby. It really is. Yeah, the big news in my world is the Taylor Swift's re-records came out. Oh, yeah. That does not have anything to do with True Crime Podcast or New York, but I feel it's significant enough in my life to mention it. I mean, mine too. Yeah. I like Taylor. We're Swifties. Mm-hmm. So, really been enjoying that. Um, nothing about it is sad, so that's... Well, that's a fucking lie. Yeah. Well. <laughs> There's plenty to be sad. Nothing about it is about murder, which True. is um, important in times like these. But we know you're here to hear about murder and to hear about the darker side of human social life, so... We'll, we'll, we'll take you to that. We'll take you to that now. Yeah, you need to talk louder. I will talk louder! Like, I need to stay the fuck away from the microphone and you need to talk louder because okay. we just... Alright, what do you have for us this week? Okay, so this week I would like to tell you about someone who is very important in the New York City LGBTQ community and whose murder helped to start a very important organization to aid homeless LGBTQ youth in New York City. So there is some some upside to this horrible story. So this is the story of Ali Fournay. Ali was a 22-year-old homeless transgender person who was found shot to death on the sidewalk in front of a housing project on East 135th Street in Harlem on December 5th of 1997. That year, Ali was the third young trans sex worker who was murdered in Harlem in just over a year's time. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Ali's background and then tell you this story as far as we know it. So Ali Fournay was originally born in North Carolina to his mom, Trevor Fournay, but at a young age, they moved to Brooklyn, New York and lived in a housing project. And Ali's mom said that she knew from early in his childhood that he was different from other boys, that he enjoyed some stereotypically feminine activities like playing with dolls or playing dress up with his mom's clothes. 
And let's just know that that's not that unusual. But Ali knew that his mom could see him struggling with feeling different. As an adult, Ali later wrote, It's frustrating trying to hide something that you have to let out. I tried for years, but my mother knew something was there. Now, just a note here, Ali mostly went by the name Ali, and from all accounts I could find from friends, he used he, him pronouns. Sometimes Ali went by the name Luscious and wore a wig, a skirt, and combat boots, and when Ali was Luscious, he used she, her pronouns, but for the most part, he was known to friends as Ali and used he, him pronouns. So Ali was described by friends and those who knew him as both transgender and gender non-conforming. So I think it's just important to note that the terminology that's used by the communities we now think of as part of a trans umbrella has changed a lot since 1997. In the 1990s, many people of color who identified as what we today would call queer, transgender, transsexual, or gender non-conforming simply identified as gay. Um, so that has changed a lot in the last uh, 25, 30 years. If you're interested in learning more about this particular topic, I highly recommend the book Imagining Transgender by David Valentine. So around age 13, Ali was sent to a home for troubled teens after getting in some trouble at school, becoming involved in some minor crimes. But Ali hated the home and ran away within months. He spent a few years in the foster care system, living in at least four different foster homes, and this was not a safe time for Ali either. He once barricaded himself in a room in his foster home as other kids bullied him, and then he got in trouble for it. Um, now, it's not clear what happened to his mom at this point, but she, at this point, is not involved in his life, and um, he is, is mostly on his own, again, jumping from that home for troubled teens and into the foster care system. At the time, the only youth shelter for homeless youth in New York City was run by the Catholic Church. Uh-oh. So any kids who were LGBTQ did not feel safe there. They often preferred the dangers of the streets to the mistreatment and bullying that happened in the shelter. So again, like many LGBTQ teenagers, the homes and institutions and foster care were not safe places, and Ali felt more accepted on the streets. And there was not, because the only shelter was run by the Catholic Church, there was not a safe place to seek shelter as a homeless teen. So the streets were the safest place to be with other people who understood what you were going through. And Ali had been dabbling in sex work since he was 13, making $40 from adults, which he later said made him feel wealthy like Donald Trump. (laughs) A very different connotation in the 90s. Um, After leaving his foster homes, Ali started riding the E-train at nights as a warm place to sleep. Have you ever been on the E-train? Not recently, no. Yeah, it's not a train I've taken a lot, um, only when I'm really downtown. So the E-train runs between the World Trade Center in lower Manhattan um, out to Jamaica Center, which is the last stop on uh, most trains in Queens. And this was a very popular train in the time and continues to be a very popular train for homeless people in general and the homeless teenagers who Ali was part of. And that's because the train is underground most of the way, so it doesn't get very cold or bright. It is a very long ride from station to station, and at the end of the line, you, because it's the very end of the line, um, you can get on the train going the other way without paying an extra fare. So like the sixth train, it just turns around at the end. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this one turns around at the end or if it's just the way the station is, but 
Um, that's why it has become known as the Homeless Express. So when Ali was 17, he finally got some help from a drop-in center that had started helping homeless teens near Times Square. This was called Safe Space. They assisted Ali in getting his social security number and card so that he could get work and work on his GED. When he turned 18, Ali was granted a $10,000 settlement from a traffic accident that he was involved in as a child. He knew this money was coming to him when he turned 18, and he had been making big plans to use it to help his family. But after only a few days of having the money, Ali returned back to the streets and his friends, saying vaguely that it had just not worked out with his family. Mm. So on the streets, Ali had two really close friends. Kevin, who's also called Kiki Freeman, and Dion Webster. They were like a family to each other, and those who knew them often called them the Three Musketeers. After they all turned 19, they were no longer eligible to stay in New York City's teen homeless shelters, so Kevin or Kiki, Dion, and Ali built themselves a shack made out of aluminum siding, rubber tires, and bricks near Marcus Garvey Park. And this is right on the border uh, from East Harlem into Central Harlem. And um, just a note here, I found conflicting reports about the pronouns that Kevin or Kiki and Dion used when they, uh, when they were alive, spoiler alert. So I will just use they, them pronouns for them to be respectful. So during this time, Ali was using drugs more and more and living on the street put him at a higher risk of being policed and criminalized. During a two and a half year period, Ali was arrested 42 times for minor infractions like jumping, subway turnstiles, drug possession, and prostitution. He later said that his increased reliance on crack cocaine during this time was related to his experience of sex work. He said that he needed to help ease the, quote, degradation and fear of selling himself. Makes sense. Yes. So even though Ali was struggling, he continued to go to counseling at the various outreach programs that served homeless youth in New York City. And through this, he became interested in peer counseling and risk reduction in his community. Ali started passing out condoms to anyone he saw on the streets. When he bought from his drug dealer, he would offer them condoms in return. And Ali was passionate about this because at the time, HIV and AIDS was still ravaging New York's most marginalized communities. Those who were homeless, LGBTQ, Black or Latino, or used drugs. These are the people who would be at most risk of getting HIV infection and also at with the least amount of access to available uh, testing and treatments. And Ali was quoted as saying, quote, I saw so many HIV infected people on the stroll. Even now there are people who don't know how to use condoms. And this was in the, the mid 1990s. Ali became a trusted peer educator and even traveled to San Francisco once to help educate social workers about the needs of homeless LGBTQ teens. But just as Ali was gaining this confidence and respect in his community, tragedy struck. It was a cold night in New York City in early November of 1996, and as they were out working the streets, Ali found his friend Dion, one of these three musketeers, and and Ali told Dion that it was time to call it a night. It was getting late. Let's just go home. Dion told Ali, I promise we'll leave after this one. This is one of my regulars. So it was a John who had come up that um, Dion didn't want to 
want to leave early um, before helping him out. Um, Dion did not return in time and it was getting very late. So Ali went home, which at the time was sleeping on the floor of a friend's apartment. When Ali woke up the next morning, he learned that one of his best friends had been found dead with a knife shoved in their head. In their head? In their head. Oh. Dion had died. Ali had to identify Dion's body. Crying at the time, he told police everything he remembered, including the make and model of the car and the man that Dion was last seen with. After Dion's death, Ali obsessively worked the streets in the same area, hoping to see that man again and to give police a tip, but he never saw him. So friends recall that after Dion's death, Ali went downhill. Losing Dion meant losing his family, essentially. Um, this three musketeer trio of, of friends going through the same experience was the most experience of family that Ali had had in a long time. And then Ali attempted suicide twice. He began using drugs more to cope, and he was starting fights with others. About six months after Dion's death, Ali was unfortunately dealt another blow. Kevin, or Kiki, Ali's other friend and the last of the three musketeers, was found dead in Marcus Garvey Park. Kevin, or Kiki's skull, was nearly split in half, and rumors swirled that the death was related to a drug deal. Ali reportedly knew this dealer and provided some information to the police in an attempt to help solve his friend's murder, but nothing came of it. Kevin, or Kiki, died in June of 1997. By December of that year, Ali's friends were worried about him. Carl Siciliano, a friend of Ali's from the Outreach Center, remembers getting a telephone call on the morning of December 5th of 1997. It was a police officer inquiring about a John Doe at the Harlem Hospital. Carl fe feared immediately that it was Ali. The last time they spoke, Ali said that he had been arrested for drugs and was waiting on a court date. He seemed really down at the time and hopeless. Another friend recalled seeing Ali the same night as Carl had seen him, and that time Ali had talked about needing to pay a drug dealer who he had, he had promised to pay by the next day. Before he could pay this debt, Ali ended up in jail with the drug charge. The John Doe at Harlem Hospital was confirmed to be Ali Fournay. He was found shot outside of a housing project on 135th Street and 5th Avenue in Harlem. Around 75 people attended Ali's memorial service at Times Square Church, and Ali's friend Carl Siciliano attended the service, ending it by reading a, pro a poem that Ali had written and performed at a talent show earlier that year. And I'll read you that poem. I believe that one day the Lord will come back to get me. Hallelujah. If I live right, hallelujah, I will go on to that righteous place. I believe that one day, hallelujah, all my trials, all my tribulations, they will all be over. I won't have to worry about crying and suffering no more. I won't have to worry about being disappointed because my God, hallelujah, is coming back for me. Whether I'm a man with a dress and a wig, my God will love me for who I am. I might not walk like I'm supposed to walk. I might not have sex with who I'm supposed to have sex with. My God will love me for who I am, so don't worry about me. Worry about yourself, because as long as my God believes in me, I'm not worried about what folks say. Hallelujah. Ollie Fournay's murder remains unsolved to this day. Kevin, or Kiki, and Dion's murders remain unsolved as well. Carl Siciliano, who knew Ali... 
Kevin or Kiki and Dion said that the lack of attention to solving these murders is a quote stark example of how if you're queer homeless or a youth of color in New York City your murder doesn't seem to matter that much in the year 2002 Carl started the Ali Fournay Center and I'll read you the center's description of itself and its connection to Ali's legacy from their website the Ali Fournay Center houses and protects homeless LGBT youth living on the streets of New York. Like Ali, our street outreach team educates teens about safe sex and HIV prevention. In our time, we have grown to provide medical and mental health services. We also provide volunteer mentors, educational and career programs, life skills training, and much more. Our goal is not only to provide food, water, and shelter. Our goal is to transform the lives of these young people so that they may reclaim their lives and never live on the streets again. Ali's murder has never been brought to justice. However, the spirit of Ali continues to live on in our work and in each of the lives we change. In December of 2020, a transgender Latinx woman, Alexandria Winchester, died from a gunshot wound in her home in the Bronx. Alexandria was a client of the Ali Fournay Center. A man has been arrested in connection with this murder. Even so, the tragedy of Alexandria's death and of every murder of a trans person who has been targeted for expressing their gender identity proves that there is still so much important work to do. Trans people are 1.6 times more likely to experience physical violence and 1.8 times more likely to experience sexual violence as compared with cisgender people, according to a report from the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs. Today, the Ali Fournay Center is the largest LGBT community center helping homeless youth in the United States. LGBTQ youth comprise approximately 40% of New York's young homeless people. So out of all the homeless people under the age of 18 in New York, 40% of those belong to the LGBTQ community, which is just crazy. When the center first opened, it only had six beds. They were operating out of a church basement. The actress B. Arthur, who was in Golden Girls, Mm. left $300,000 in her will to the center. And B. Arthur's generous donation allowed the shelter to stay open during the recession years of the 2000s. Her name now graces the B. Arthur Residence, which is an 18-bed facility in the East Village that houses the center's two-year transitional living program to prepare homeless LGBTQ young people for successfully living alone. In January 2015, the Ali Fournay Center's drop-in center on 125th Street in Harlem became the nation's first 24-hour drop-in program for homeless LGBTQ youth. You can learn more about the Ali Fournay Center at www.alifournaycenter.org. That's A-L-I-F-O-R-N-E-Y center.org. And there's lots of ways you can help the center. You can donate money directly to help the homeless LGBTQ youth in Ali's memory on the website. They also have some links on their website to some Amazon wish lists that they put together of items that would directly support clients of the center. And if you live in New York City, you can also volunteer at the center. They need help with preparing meals, sorting donations, and mentoring clients, among other things that you can read about on their website. So that is the tragic unsolved case of the murder of Ali Fournay. And sources for this case were taken from the Ali Fournay Center, which helps to document this story and preserve it and its importance for the future. 
There's also a New York Times article by Tina Rosenberg in 1998, a New York Daily News article from 2016, and also a write-up by the Reddit user Trifle Truffles that helped a lot. Well, so that's, that's really sad. Yeah, I was tearing up researching this one just because it's, I mean, it, unfortunately, the situation for people like Ali has not changed since 1998. No, essentially it's, like it's still bad. the the level of violence and murder has actually gone up um since then and like partially Wait, up yes based on i mean partially that is like how do we count statistics right, you know yeah, like we have yeah. more recognition for recognizing something i mean again the term transgender was very rarely used in 1996 so True. even to be able to say the murder of trans people and to know what that means, like, didn't really exist. So, of course, it's going to go up as we recognize it. That's, like, one fact of knowledge production. Right. But it has gone up since we've started recognizing it. 2020 was the height. Oh, uh, good. Based on statistics that I saw for violence in the United States. And, you know, the, the obviously, like, a complicating factor for a lot of these murders is the trans panic defense which is um, a legal precedent that has been set by some cases whereby, you know, someone can claim that they were so shocked by finding out someone was transgender, someone who they were flirting with or having sexual encounter with, that they were, you know, basically made insane um, and that their violence should be excused, which is obviously bullshit. Yeah, that could not be, like, a bigger more steamy heaping pile of bullshit right um so it's it's just sad because this is this is a a a compounding of forms of violence obviously we are in the midst of the tragedy of watching the black lives matter movement grow and have to grow because of the every week or two weeks uh, somebody is killed by the police and you know that might seem not related to this case but Ali and all of his friends were black trans people and like the fact that they're black is not just coincidental Um, it was part of why they were marginalized uh, part of why they were put into places where they were over policed and under resourced and part of why they were especially targeted for these forms of violence so Black Lives Matter, Trans Lives Matter, and Black Trans Lives Matter. Yeah, com- combine it both at the same <laughs> okay. time. But you know what you can't say? All Lives Matter. Right. No. No, can't say that one. Don't say it. No. Here's a picture of Ali um, in the center. And this is, oh, this is their website. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty fucking amazing. So the drop-in center, like, you could literally just walk up and drop in and they'll like test you for HIV, um, enroll you in Medicaid, give you a hot shower and hot meal, clean clothes, you can have a warm place to sleep, they have psych evaluations, um, general medical checkups, group therapy, mental health counseling, support groups, workshops, case management, recreation, um, just, I mean, it's amazing. And they also yeah, they just have, show up there and then you get yeah. what you need. Exactly, which is how our society how should, it should work. work. How it should work. And they have these emergency housing sites um, for people in crisis. And, 
yeah, the Amazon wish lists were really fun to look at too because, you know, they need a lot of really basic things like socks and underwear. Right. Um, but they also have things that would just help be affirming to um, people going through this. So, um, you know, for people who are transgender, they need gender affirming items like wigs right. and bras like that we would say oh well that's not a necessity like some people would say that but it's like that's absolutely a necessity to feel like yourself and to have the dignity well yeah i mean those those items are required by society for women and that's what you're that's what you're trying to do so that's what you need yeah and i mean the center um helps trans men, trans women, gender non-conforming people, but yeah, anyone um, who might need those things. Yeah, I mean, on the list, there's like Doc Martens. I mean, it's stuff <laughs> that like would make you feel like yourself and feel good. And, yeah. you know, gift cards to Ulta so you can get makeup. And um, and then they also had some on this, wait, where's this one? Um, like just decorations for their room so they can feel comfortable and like feel at home and not like this is just a homeless shelter right like this is their home for right now until they figure out where they belong in the world so i just think it's really awesome that they do that at the center and i just suggest that everyone take a look at the website and if you can help out buy a five dollar pack of socks that could really help someone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that is the tragic case of ali fournay you have any thoughts about this case or about anything really uh, you should email us at New York State of Crime nope no nope. no I got it New York State of Crime at gmail.com right and you could also go to our Instagram at New York State of Crime on Instagram on Instagram you could also go to our website, NewYorkStateOfCrimePodcast.com, where you will find uh, all of the other materials related to this and all the other cases that we do, uh, sources stated more in depth if you want that, and any links to uh, relevant information and or services and or like groups related to what we're talking about. So check it out. Check it out. And we hope you join us next week for our next episode of New York State of Crime.